Welcome to the OmniWin Project podcast, where we are accelerating the co-creation of the future of our democracy. My name is Duncan Autry, and I am a conflict transformation catalyst. I'm the creator of the OmniWin Project, and I'm your host. The goal of this project is to facilitate the healing and evolution of our democratic systems and our political culture so that together we can co-create a future that works for everyone. What that means is that if you're tired of our polarized and divisive political culture, or if you're worried about the impact of today's decisions on future generations, well, then you're in the right place. I believe that the world is ready for change, and I know that we have answers to most of the problems that we're facing. In this podcast, I'm going to be sharing them with you. I'm in this for the long haul, and I hope that you'll join me. So come on over to the OmniWinProject.com where you can get more information, media, resources, and inspiration. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the OmniWin Project podcast. Welcome to the OmniWin Project. Today's show is with Kenneth Cloak. Ken Cloak is a mediator and conflict resolution practitioner extraordinaire. He is a teacher, a trainer, and he has been an advocate for the world of conflict resolution for nearly 40 years. He is the author of many books, including Mediating Dangerously, Conflict Revolution, The Dance of Opposites, and Dialogue, and The Future of Democracy. He is also the founder of Mediators Beyond Borders International and one of the founding leaders of the Democracy, Politics, and Conflict Engagement Initiative, or DPACE. For almost 40 years now, Ken has been a staunch and tireless advocate for bringing the world of conflict resolution and interest-based mediation into the world of our politics and culture to help us create change. In the world of mediation amongst mediators, Ken is adored, and this is because of his integrity, his passion, his wisdom, and his deep presence. I'll also add that Ken is a mentor and a friend and a colleague, um, and Ken's work is one of the predominant motivations for the creation of the Omni Win Project in the first place. And that is why I've invited Ken to be my guest for this inaugural episode. This project is, in a way, in honor of him and his work, and it's an extension of his deep desire and his passion to bring real change to our society, culture, and democracy. So I'll start us off by saying that we've broken up this conversation into two parts. This is part one of the conversation. And in this, Ken is going to talk about the inherent relationship between conflict and politics and why these political decisions are so important to us. And he also introduces some new lenses by which we can observe and understand the nature of our political conflict. He also helps us talk about how democracy and our political system itself is actually a tool for resolving conflict, but also how that system is getting it wrong because it keeps on forcing us into binary choices between this or that, or yes or no, or for and against, or this person or that person. And so he points out the importance of us needing to be able to engage with nuance, to work through our differences and to collaborate in our decision making. And fortunately, the tools and approaches that can help us evolve our democracy are already available. And that's what we're going to discuss in part two. But for now, let's get into the conversation. This interview was recorded live in March of the year 2022. So now, please enjoy this conversation with my friend, Kenneth Cloak. Well, Ken, thank you so much for being part of this inaugural episode of the OmniWin Project podcast. Thank you, Duncan, for inviting me. 
uh, onto this program. Thank you for doing this program. Thank you for thinking about these issues and opening conversations between us about how we can do better in achieving the things that we all want to achieve. Thank you. Some of your writing and some of your thinking has really given me hope that all the different tools for mediation and conflict resolution that are out there can really be applied to all of these important public policy issues and there's wonderful applications. And I guess for those who don't know, you're one of like the original mediators. It's just, you've been in this field for since the very beginnings. And so you've seen the arc of it and you've seen what it's been able to achieve. And I also know that there's a longing in you to see, figure out, well, there's more that this can be achieved. And so I also want to just create space for how do we really make this happen? I think that's a pretty good introduction. So I guess we can start with what do you see about the state of our democracy that is concerning you the most right now? Where do you see the, the challenges that it's facing at this moment? So I think the best way of thinking of this uh, is to trace the idea of democracy back to its origins. So democracy consists of two parts, demos and democracy, uh, or archy, if you will, um, which kind of means rule by the people. So we've got various forms of archy, ranging from anarchy to uh, various forms of what we could think of as heterarchy, uh, multiple different kinds of government. And democracy became real in Athens um, a little less than 2,500 years ago. And I think it's important to take a look at what people thought of it at that time, what it meant to people, because what is really at stake here is not just the nature of our democracy and what techniques or tools we use to implement it. It is the entirety of politics and political problem solving. So if we go back to Athens, um, we look at the very first book that was written about politics, which was written by Aristotle, and it's called Politics. And in this book, Aristotle defines politics as, uh, in quotes, a search for the highest common good. So if we hear this, we think, well, that sounds perfectly fine. Nothing wrong with that definition. We're all trying to search for the highest common good. Uh, the only problem with it is that it doesn't describe the system that we actually have. So what's missing? And interestingly, Aristotle tells us just a few paragraphs later when he says, uh, of course, none of this applies to women, children, slaves, or barbarians. So when we talk about democracy, government, as Lincoln put it, of the people, by the people, and for the people, uh, we have to ask the question, who are these people, which people, and what is the kind of governing that we are talking about? What does governing actually consist of? So the difficulty is that if you exclude women, children, slaves, and barbarians, you've excluded at least 80% of the population of Athens and possibly more. So what we have actually is a kind of democracy of non-slave owners uh, and by barbarians, Aristotle and the Greeks were referring to foreigners, to immigrants, to Athens. So what we have is really two things simultaneously. 
One is a search for the highest common good. And the second is an exclusion from consideration, um, an exclusion from listening, an exclusion from problem solving of the overwhelming majority of the population. So in Lincoln's terms, government of the people, by the people, and for the people did not, of course, include slaves or Native Americans or women, because women, none of these had the right to vote. And so what we can see is that democracy actually has two pieces to it. One piece is the search for the highest common good, which involves a conversation between people for whom what is good is different from what is good for someone else. So as soon as you introduce the idea of diversity, you require dialogue. Otherwise, what happens is you have the rule of uh, the most powerful, uh, the most influential, the wealthiest, the one with the greatest status. And so what conflict resolution offers us is a series of tools for maximizing the search for the highest common good and minimizing the effort to use power in order to secure domination. Because when we exclude women, we are talking about the domination of men. And when we exclude slaves, we are talking about the domination of slave owners, uh, the domination of adults over children, the domination of citizens over migrants. And these are not the only forms of domination that we want to identify. The only groups that are being dominated or uh, sort of excluded from the process of deciding what is the highest common good. So if instead we take as our model conflict resolution, and particularly we look at mediation, what does it look like in mediation? And the answer is we're still searching for the highest common good, but without excluding anyone. So just as diversity requires dialogue, dissent requires consensus building. And so what we are looking at is a way of trying to get to a place of understanding of what it is that people want, why they want it, why it's important to them, and how we can take these different, diverse, and sometimes contradictory pieces and draw them into conversation with one another in such a way as to produce a higher order of problem solving. So here's a short, what we think of, of conflict resolution of mediation as an interest-based process, meaning we look not just at what people's positions are, but what their interests are, the reasons why they have those positions, which are deeper, more profound, more meaningful to the people who have them. So we can now say that politics uh, can be defined in an interest-based way, and democracy can be looked at in an interest-based way. And what does that consist of? It's very simple. It's social problem solving. But in order for the social problem solving to work, the difficulty is um, this is an, a complex process. And so there are efforts to simplify it in order to make it workable. One way of simplifying it is simply to exclude people who are diverse. That is, to take out of the conversation 
anybody who might disagree with you. And we can think of the last couple thousand years of human history as being various efforts essentially to do that. Um, but what mediation offers us with an extraordinary level of success, that is, we're talking about um, 90, 95% of disputes getting resolved on the basis of consensus with no judge telling people what to do and no dictator identifying what the outcome is going to be regardless of what people think. So in my view, mediation is a kind of small democracy that we practice one by one, uh, dispute by dispute, with small groups of people in an effort to exercise their kind of efforts to come to terms with, to understand, to listen to, to work with, to problem solve uh, among people who really do not agree, um, sometimes with people who are directly opposed to one another, or at least think that they are. So what does this mean? What it means, I think, is that if we are going to create a democratic methodology, we can't do it without adding into it a set of skills in communication, in diversity, in consensus building, in collaborative forms of negotiation, and in conflict resolution. Without those skills, you will have a form of democracy that has got to fail. So there are two very interesting comments about democracy and why it fails. Uh, the first is from Plato in The Republic, who writes that democracy is always vulnerable because what happens is we try to satisfy everybody's interests and then nobody feels completely satisfied. And then along comes an autocrat or a dictator uh, who turns democracy against itself, who uses the openness of democracy in order to destroy it. And this is actually what Hitler and Goering and Goebbels and various other spokespeople for the Nazi regime in the 1930s in Europe uh, actually expressed openly. Um, that they were using democracy in order to destroy it. How exactly do you do that? Well, it turns out we've had some lessons, um, and we are going through one of those lessons right now in Ukraine. But what is interesting, and I think a part of what is being missed, is that one of the methodologies by which democracy destroys itself is the creation of an enemy who then uh, gets stereotyped. Um, typecast. And we could see it happening right now with Putin, who is becoming demonized. And this is not to say that what Russia is doing is correct or valid or any of those things. It is to say, isn't it interesting how people in conflict invite other people to join them, in part by the quality of their rhetoric? in part by their biases and prejudices, which invite people to say, no, no, that's not me, and you're worse. So if we just boil it down to a very, very simple equation, a very simple uh, elementary communication, someone insults you, what do you do? Answer, you insult them right back. What has won? Answer, insults. Insults have won. Insulting has won. 
and the one who insulted you? If we ask the question, um, were they doing this in order to get you to insult them so as to backwards justify their insulting you and turn the process into a circle and make it impossible for anything constructive to happen because they don't believe it can and because they want you to join them in their misery? Often the answer to that question is yes. So here's the difficulty. How do we oppose war without slipping into warlike attitudes that backwards justify the original attack? And this is exactly what is happening in Russia right now. The media in Russia are saying, look at how they're characterizing us, providing a perfect backwards rationalization for uh, the destruction of, of a civilization. So every conflict, in a way, proceeds in a similar kind of way. What do we do in conflict resolution? Answer, we try to identify people's legitimate interests and look for ways of solving them in a win-win type of fashion. So my view is that conflict resolution, uh, as you know, Duncan, because we've talked about this before, is fractally organized, meaning it is self-similar on all scales. So there's something similar about the way two kids fight in a playground and what happens between the heads of nation states. And therefore, we can scale up or scale down techniques that are useful in one location so that they will prove useful in some other location. So what is democracy really? Well, I think it has three forms. The first form is what we can think of as power-based democracies. And these are the democracies that are actually autocracies that simply have periodic elections. But uh, there's a very famous quote from Stalin who said, it isn't people who vote who control history, it's those who count the votes. And so we can see that at a very cynical level, autocrats around the world use the democratic form uh, simply as a way of getting some form of legitimacy to what is actually one person rule, is actually just another form of domination. Second form of democracy is what I think we can think of as rights-based democracy. The first is power-based, taking the form of autocracy or dictatorship, uh, disguising itself as democracy. The second is what we can think of as a kind of legal democracy, a procedural democracy that consists largely of elections that are fair. But here's the difficulty. Those elections are all constructed according to an assumption and a set of processes that are digital. That is, you vote yes or no, this candidate versus that candidate, this party versus that party. And there are no internal, uh, intermediate options that are available, or very few of them, more of them in Europe and in parliamentary democracies. But still, it's relatively digital. And then the question becomes, what openings are there for people not just to cast their vote and say yes or no, but to talk to one another in a constructive problem-solving way and actually contribute to the development of solutions to problems. So why are we facing these difficulties now? And I think that the answer is we are now facing problems that can no longer be solved by individual nation states. 
they can no longer be solved digitally. It's no longer possible to have a yes or no answer to climate change and have that be successful. We need something much more skillful, much more nuanced, something that requires greater complexity, um, something that has much more flexibility in terms of modes of response, et cetera. And there's a second contributing factor, which is because of the growth of conflict resolution and similar skills, all the things you identified, Duncan, the you know sort of ideas about sortition, which was the method used in Athens uh, for people to take part in government or uh, circles or restorative justice or nonviolent communication, appreciative inquiry, victim offender mediation. You know, there are just dozens of these things that are taking place around the world. And I think that we are gradually coming to the realization that we do not have to have enemies. So now what do we do if we don't have to have enemies? Well, I think that the answer is we have to figure out how to talk to each other in a constructive way. We have to, as a species, figure out how to solve global problems and overcome the adversarial competitive nature of nation states that discourage that from happening. We can see it in the pandemic. We can see it in climate change. We can see it in Ukraine. We can see it in a a vast array of problems that are asserting themselves around the world in increasing numbers with increasing seriousness. And so what we require is a higher order of democracy, which is an interest-based form of democracy, one in which there are multiple correct answers. And if you live in a power-based dictatorship, you only need to know what the dictator thinks. There's one answer, which is what the dictator says. If you live in a legal democracy, it's what the judge says, or what Congress uh, decides by majority vote, or what the president thinks, which is broader than what the dictator thinks. But it's not the same as all of us, that is the demos, the people, actually governing, ruling, making decisions, solving problems, fixing things that don't work, working together, trying to build understanding and collaboration, cooperation, synergy across national and cultural borders. So that's a shorthand. So Ken, you know, there's a way that I think that you help touch on like a lot of different layers here. Like what are we looking at and we've seen in our democracy? And then also what are we, and what are some of the possibilities? So I, I appreciate just your reminder always that Politics is a problem-solving system, right? As a society, we need to be able to solve problems, make decisions together, and it has this goal of the highest common good. And we also know that from the very beginning, it's had this basis of exclusion, like some people are not participating in this. Um, And it seems like that exclusion, you know, there's a way that we've really developed, expanded the franchise of of democracy. We've given the right to vote to many people and, and, and so forth. There's a new way of kind of exclusion that I see happening that is happening like with in our representative system in the sense that we're giving the we're concentrating the power and people who we've elected to make choices, but they're not necessarily listening to the people. So there's like a certain layer there of not truly getting the participation of the demos. And part of the reason why that's happening is because of this digital win lose, yes, no rights based democracy where we're putting things up onto people's 
choices and being like, choose this or choose that. And by creating that very black and white linear digital choice, we're excluding the other side, right? So whatever lost in a vote is also now no longer the the winner, right? And and when I really appreciate your comment that this is inadequate <laughs> to the kinds of issues that we are trying to face right now, in the sense that we have very complex, nuanced issues, whether we're looking at climate change in the future, or trying to reconcile the legacy of slavery from the past, or look at police, criminal justice system issues right now. These are all nuanced issues, and we're not going to fix any of them with a digital yes-no vote on any specific issue. And something also that I thought was interesting is that one of the things that get undermines democracy is this in that exclusion is by creating the enemy mm -hmm. and trying to say that person's not uh, allowed to be here <laughs> or participate or something. And I noticed that that's also something that happens in our culture as well. So that people, whenever their political party might be, they have a um, whatever political perspective they have. It's very often that they might be organizing the world and so we're the good guys and those are the enemies. So even within our system, we have people that are trying to exclude others. Now that could be Republicans excluding Democrats or Democrats excluding Republicans, you know, even when we're explicitly part of the same system. And so you offer this not just bringing mediation to the service or into, into our democracy, but actually bringing it to a higher order of democracy, to an interest-based democracy that's using some of the principles of mediation as a possible way forward. And opening to the possibility there might be multiple answers to certain things and that every person who's involved in the situation needs to be included in the solution. And I appreciated the comment you said about, like, that even if there's dissent, then we actually need to do some consensus building. Um, I wonder, where do you see opportunities to, like, practically bring some of that into our system? Like, I mean, so this is on the conceptual level, I'm with you. And... Oh, we're definitely in alignment there. I'm curious where you see the chances to actually create spaces for people to, you know, be part of the conversation um, and have the the actual demos, you know, participate in nuanced conversation. How? Any thoughts about how we actually get there? Yes. Let me say that I'm saying this on the basis of now having spent 42 years of my life uh, mediating and facilitating large group multi-stakeholder consensus building processes. So for the last 42 years, I've spent nearly all of it um, working with people who hate each other, people who don't agree, people who are on absolutely opposite sides. And the question then becomes, how do you help those people come to uh, some kind of an agreement with each other uh, or at the very least, stop, you know, sort of fighting in destructive ways against each other. So there are several very practical things that can be done. Uh, in the first place, to, uh, well, let me describe it a little differently. In the large group, multi-stakeholder consensus building processes like environmental disputes, public policy disputes, disputes around zoning ordinances, around, you know, sort of uh, mining and conflicts between environmental groups and mine owners and you know all of these kinds of disputes. What we have fundamentally is two diverse sets of interests 
that are not talking to one another and that take the form not of interests, but of positions. And a position is I win or I win. And then what you have slipped into is what we call a zero sum game. So that's any kind of relationship in which uh, there's a total of 10. So if you get seven, I get three. And if you get six, I get four. And so we are automatically pitted against each other. And many of the processes uh, that are power-based and rights-based are adversarial in their nature. And this is all we have had available to us for millennia. But now, as a result of work in conflict resolution, we have developed mechanisms that allow us to move away from win-lose outcome processes and create win-win processes in their place. How do we do that? Here is a very, very simple way of doing it. In any relationship, at any level, ask a question that does not have a single correct answer, and then listen to what people say. So for example, the people who are now listening to this, we can ask them three fundamental categories of questions, everybody on this call. Uh, category one, who is the oldest person on this call? Who's the youngest? Who's the tallest? Who's the shortest? Who lives the closest to downtown San Francisco? Who lives the furthest away? And there is a single correct answer for everyone. Category two, how tall are you? How old are you? Where do you live? Now there's a single correct answer for each person. And notice that these two categories parallel the distinction between power and rights-based processes. What is an interest-based question? Here are some examples in category three. What issues are you facing at whatever age you're at? What does your height mean to you? What did, mean, what did it mean to you when you were 12 or 13? What do you love about where you live? What do you not love about where you live? And notice we have moved from one correct answer for everyone to a single correct answer for each person to multiple correct answers for everyone. And aren't those by far the most interesting questions we can ask? So all we have to ask are questions like, what's important to you? Why is that important? What does it mean to you? Uh, what do you really want and why? Those kinds of questions allow us to search beneath this relatively superficial positions that we take in our families, for example, about do we buy this or do we not buy this, which is about should we spend money or save it? But beneath that are levels of security for each person um, that haven't necessarily been discussed. Do you feel unsafe uh, spending large sums of money? Do you feel that that's an important piece of your enjoyment uh, to spend money on things? Um, how, where does this come from? How is money handled in your family of origin? Uh, what does money mean to you? What does it stand for? What's it a metaphor for? And now we can start to have a real conversation. And here is where the magic happens. And I can tell you that anyone who has done even a small number of mediations has seen magic happen, where people, in spite of their differences and the opposition and competition between their various positions, listen to each other and begin to understand what's important to each other and collaborate in searching for solutions. And we now have to do this on a global scale. Here's the problem. Size matters when it comes to conversation. So 
if we uh, there's a difference between a conversation between two people and three people and four people and five and six and a hundred and two hundred and there's even something um, that is called Dunbar's number, which is named after a professor uh, in England uh, who said that we cannot form relationships of more than 250 people. And so what do we do? We lump them into categories. That is, we stereotype them. And in part, our stereotyping is a product of mass society, because what we're looking for are ways of simplifying the complexity of individual human experience. And what we can do instead uh, is fundamentally drawn from uh, the advice of every major, significant, successful facilitator who's lived on the planet, I would say. And you can especially find it in a book by Peter Block called Flawless Consulting. Uh, and what Peter says is there are two rules of working with large groups. First rule, put people into small groups. Second rule, there are no other rules. So what happens when you get into a group of people with five or six people in it? And the answer is you've got a chance to talk and say what's important to you. And you get an opportunity to listen to each other. And you stop grandstanding and you don't make stereotyping statements if you can help it. Sometimes stereotyping is incredibly easy uh, to do. And fundamentally, we all do it in all of our conflicts. So what we want to look for ways are ways of reversing the stereotyping process. So stereotyping takes complex people and makes them simple. We want to return them to complexity. This was something that you know, I learned over time. I think I came into my work, well, I remember going to grad school after reading you know, some of your books and thinking about the fractal nature of conflict and how it's similar in all scales and like how can we take this mediation and expand it to be something larger and the answer i ended up coming up with was we got to take the large ones and break them down into smaller pieces and so i'm hearing a couple different ways that that's um you know possible and so one i'm imagining i think when people imagine like uh let's talk about a certain issue they picture some sort of town hall and they might have some image of people yelling at each other and, you know, people getting up on stage or I know, for example, I can go to a city council meeting and I'll see each person has like their two and a half minutes of talking time and everyone just says their same thing over and over again. Yeah. So that's not really working. No. So one of the things that I'm hearing is we could take this group or this population, whether I'm a, po an, a politician wanting to listen to my constituents or a, t a town hall and actually literally break the people into smaller groups. Yeah. And be like, all right, let's get you all in groups of five and talk amongst each other about the issue. And then let's see what you all come up with. And just name that there's a lot of great methodologies for doing this kind of work and, and um, for different kinds of conversations. I think the other way I can think of that I know we've mentioned um, or that you've mentioned briefly as a way of bringing in multiple perspectives um, and a smaller group is the sortition model and creating that semi-random sampling of the population like we would do with a jury or and to have them come and speak about a certain issue so i wonder if you could just you know talk either unpack that a little bit but or just explain in a certain given issue um in our democracy how would you see those small that how do we solve the dunbar number problem <laughs> okay so there are several elements of this 
If we go back to the example of the jury that you gave, what works with a jury and what doesn't? So one of the things that works with a jury is that you've got a group of people who have been selected from society as a whole with no vested interest in these people or the outcome who can sit there and you know kind of listen to what is presented to them and make a decision. What doesn't work is really on multiple scales. Uh, number one, the only question you're asked is innocent or guilty. Once again, we're back into digital decision-making because what if somebody is both innocent and guilty? And then innocent and guilty of what? Well, the answer is there's a, there are a set of words uh, that are uh, sort of statements of the law. Uh, and what the jury is asked to do, just like a judge, and I've been a judge and I still work as an arbitrator, so I have a sense of this, uh, is you are presented with a set of facts and you are given a set of legal standards. You're asked to compare the two and then come up with a single correct answer. But we can contrast this, for example, with restorative justice methods, uh, for example, sentencing circles, in which the entire community in which the crime has been committed comes together in order to look at what happened and understand it from everybody's point of view, or victim-offender mediations, in which victims and offenders come face to face and try to understand the difficulties that each of them was facing, and then look for some, uh, some form of restitution. But restorative justice goes deeper than that, because what it tries to do is to say uh, the victim is not just the one that we label the victim. The wrongdoer is also a victim of some other set of circumstances, and the community is a victim. Their families are victims. Can we have a conversation about what happened that allows us to return to community, to return to family, to fix the underlying problems that in a jury, you are actually paradoxically never allowed to glimpse because they're kept from you. Why? One, because all emotion is discouraged in courts of law, except for the emotion perhaps of the victim who gets to come up and say, here's how badly this hurt me. But there is a very low level of what we now think of as emotional intelligence in courts of law. Uh, and yet uh, emotions are part of all of our lives and they are important sources of information about the nature of problems and how to solve them. A second piece is the idea of finality. Uh, the jury is supposed to come up with a final determination, but there isn't anything final in relationships. They're ongoing. And what we need isn't just a, a determination at one point in time that somebody is wrong and the other one is right. What we need is to figure out how do we live together in a way that acknowledges both what is right and what isn't for all of us and allows that to evolve over time. And it's identical with nation states. So the kinds of choices that we have uh, are presented to us as voting in favor of this legislation or voting against it, voting in favor of this candidate or voting against that candidate. But what we need is an opportunity to talk about the issues with one another, brainstorm solutions, have those be considered by other groups of people, look for sources of synergy, 
uh, try stuff out, use pilot programs, uh, projects, etc., uh, and see that the problems that we are facing are not susceptible to a single intervention that all of a sudden finally decides, here's what it is. It's a little bit like the climate change process. Climate change is a moving target, as, just as every relationship is, just as every major significant ongoing problem is, just as every chronic source of conflict is. And what we have to do then is we have to figure out how do we keep the conversation going? How do we deepen people's understanding of what is going on, improve uh, or increase their skills, expand their capacity to make a difference, connect them with one another? Wow, I really love this question. And now I'm going to close out part one to give us a chance to ponder this profound question that Ken has set up for us. If you want to hear his answer, you should come find part two. And you can find that right away. It's immediately available. You can simply go to wherever you found this episode and select part two of my interview with Ken Cloak. While you're there, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast. You can get future episodes. I have a lot more coming and you don't want to miss any of it. So go ahead and check out part two. And thank you so much for listening to the Omni Win Project podcast. And as you step into the rest of your day, remember that you are right now starting to co-create the future. And as you do that, I would ask you to remember, we all have a role to play in the whole. Thank you so much for listening and have a great day.